Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1696. Today we're going off-road, we're taking a ride in a Jeep. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today, I'm in beautiful Henderson, Nevada, with a very special guest by the name of Paul Bruno. Hey, Paul, welcome to Cars Yeah. Are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Absolutely. I'm buckling up into my early Jeep, and we're going to take it out for a spin. You know, where you live is a perfect place to go for a drive in an old Jeep. There's so much fun out there. Go out into the desert, go down some dusty, rocky roads. Those Jeeps will go everywhere. And you listeners will find out why we're mentioning the word Jeep here in just a minute. But before I give you a proper introduction, I want you to share one little thing that most people don't know about you, Paul. I was actually on the History IQ game show. Really? Back in 2001. Yep. In their 81-person tournament. Uh, I came in ninth out of 81 contestants and was one of only seven that hit what they call the timeline, where in one minute you had to take events and put them in order in the 10-year period that they gave you for $5,000. And that was quite a thrill. I still have it. I still have it on a DVD and I, okay, I'll, I'll admit, I watch it every once in a while. <laughs> that just reminds me when I was younger. Yeah, we all get our 15 minutes of fame and our 15 seconds or whatever it might be. I think it was uh, the Andy Warhol coined that term, I believe. Well, that's pretty cool. That's kind of fun. Now, did you do anything special with that $5,000? Not particularly. You know, I just, I, maybe I could say I used it to continue my efforts in researching early Jeep history back in the day because I started in my early Jeep history, which you'll explain your listeners in 1999, and that was 2001. So kind of helped fund that little passion a little bit. Well, there you go. Very cool. Well, let me give you a proper introduction, and we're going to dive into what you're up to. Paul Bruno is an author who has spent 20 years researching, writing, and studying early Jeep history. He spent countless hours and treasure to tell his story to the world, first for the big screen and now twice in book form. After visiting key sites in the story and years of research, including at the United States National Archives, he combined his knowledge of project management and history into the 2014 book, Project Management and History, The First Jeep. After additional research, he completed his next book, The Original Jeeps, in 2020, which further tells the story of early Jeep history and continues his journey into depth of this very important inspirational work of human ingenuity. Paul has over 30 years of experience in the fields of project management and information technology. We'll be back in just a minute to talk about Paul, his book, and Jeeps. But first, a word from our valued sponsors. They make the show possible, so give them a little love. We'll be right back. Hold on. We're going for a ride in a Jeep today. Did you know that Covercraft is much more than car covers? They offer protection for the inside of your vehicles as well. No matter what kind of vehicle you drive, Covercraft makes a floor mat, a cargo area protection product just for your vehicle. Their plush custom fit floor mats turn any ride into something special. Their premier Berber custom floor mats, which are a favorite of mine, if you want something very stylish and unique for your favorite ride, they also have weather shield 
Floor liners that provide ultimate protection for heavy dirt, mud, snow, and slush. Their Carhartt Custom Cargo Liners not only look great, but keep your rear cargo area and seats protected from the kids, the pets, or whatever's going on back there. Do you have a pet that destroys your vehicles? Covercraft has you covered for that, too, with a wide variety of pet protection options. Is your vehicle getting a little long in tooth? There's no better way to give it a new car look than with a custom-fit floor and trunk mat. I replaced mine every few years with something a little different just for fun. All your options are easy to clean, they secure to the floor, and they look oh so good. Don't forget your trunk too. Custom fit trunk liners for sedans, coupes, and SUVs are perfect to protect the factory carpet from all those things that can stain, tear, and damage your carpets. Check out Covercraft.com for the huge number of styles, colors, and options that you'll love. And I've got a deal for you here at Cars Yeah. If you use the Yeah 120 code at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order on me. Go to Covercraft.com, use the code Y-E-A-H-120 at checkout and get 10% off today. Covercraft, they've got you covered. American Collectors Insurance. That's who now protects my Porsche Turbo. The one I call my orange crush. They've been protecting vehicles since 1976. With all the time, effort, and money you've put into your classic vehicles, do you know how much you would receive if yours was stolen, damaged, or totaled in an accident or a fire? Your regular auto insurance carriers won't tell you until after the claim, and more than likely, you'll be in for a rude awakening. With an agreed value policy from American Collectors Insurance, you'll be paid your vehicle's full agreed value. No surprises. So don't just hope for a fair claim settlement. Be certain and know exactly what you'll get with an agreed value policy. I shopped around and decided to protect my car with American Collectors Insurance. Give them a call today for a quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 866- 224-9324 and protect the ones you love. Tell them Mark Green at Cars Yeah sent you. That's American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors, folks just like you and me. We're back and we're going to continue on this uh, bumpy ride here in this Jeep with you. But first, I want you to share a great quote or a mantra, Paul. Something that has meaning for you. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires spinning a little bit. So, Paul, grab the wheel. Yeah, it comes from the Bible where Jesus said, um, you know how people in this world lord it over others. Not so with you. The first shall be last and servant of all, just as the Son of Man came to be came to serve and not be served. And that's kind of the mantra that I've adopted. I can't say that I was necessarily real good at that in my younger days, but (laughs) as I've gotten older, being a servant and serving others and kind of a corollary, uh, obviously doing unto others as they would want to do with me. And I have found that being a servant, shockingly, Mark, there's not a large group of people jockeying in that line. Yes. To be in the servant's line. I got it kind of all to myself over here, or just a few of us. So (laughs) that is really what inspires me. And it has brought success in a different way with internal joy being there to serve others and that my life is not all about me. You know what? You figured out the secret sauce to life, Paul, and I can tell you why I do know what that secret sauce is, because you're my 1,696th guest here on Cars Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people, and one thing I enjoy about Cars Yeah is they teach me. Every guest teaches me a little something. But what I've learned is that when we decide to serve others 
and do things that are helpful to others, we are really the happiest we can possibly be, whether we even know it or not at the time that we're doing it. I I truly believe it does something to us internally. And so many of my past guests have taken the path that you have. Just yesterday, I had Bo Bachman on the show. He's the COO of Galpin Ford, a huge organization of all these car businesses. He also is a TV star on Driven. Uh, He's been on uh, in some other shows. And he said that his father taught him that when he started his dealership, that they decided that their dealerships were going to be about serving their customers and their employees. So you figured out the secret sauce already. So hopefully together we've inspired some other folks to do that with their lives. I try to do that here. I try to help people learn how they can be successful and have fun in their careers by interviewing inspiring automotive enthusiasts like you. And let's dive into this fashion, fascination, fascination, this fascination that you have for Jeeps. I mean, this is an iconic vehicle that made a huge difference, not only during wartime in this country, but it's just carried on this icon. So let's start by going back to this whole fascination you have with Jeeps. And then we're going to talk about the original Jeeps in 2020, this new book you have. Yeah, my fascination is uh, really with early Jeep history, as we talked about. And I leave the the stuff um, for the war and after to people who are much better than myself. But I've really focused on this early Jeep history. And Mark, you say, why did you do that, Paul? Mark, thanks for asking. And the reason reason is, is um, back uh, 20 plus years ago, I was watching the big rigs of combat on the History Channel. You know, the life here is exciting. I, you know, barely can handle it. (laughs) And it was about Jeeps. And they came up with this teaser that said the first Jeep was created by a bankrupt car company in Butler, Pennsylvania in the incredible time frame of 49 days. And at the time, yeah, at the time, exactly. Wow. Um, I was, uh, starting to write screenplays. And I said, this would make a great screenplay. And I, little did I know at the time that I'd be still at it 20 years later, but I started research, researching the story. And the more I found out about the story, the more it draw me, drew me in, again, the early Jeep history. And it's just like, and hopefully we'll get into some of it, this really how the first Jeep and the first three Jeeps came about should not have happened. It's literally miraculous wow. in, my, in my mind. And one of the greatest stories in American history, automotive history, military history, and maybe all of history of how this all came about. And we weren't able to get anybody interested in the movie, but I was kind of got a piece about that last year when they came out with Ford versus Ferrari, because our movie was literally exactly the same. So kind of as a proof of concept, and that movie made really good money. So we weren't able to get anyone interested in doing the movie, though. We tried, my late wife and I, very much. So around 2011, we decided to put it into book form. And I did more research, found some things that were incredible, And as you mentioned in the intro, first book came out combining my project management and history experience, uh, the project management history of the first Jeep, just focusing on the first one. And then for the 80th anniversary of the creation of the first three Jeeps, which are on the cover of the current book, we decided to cover their story, the Willis Quad and the Ford Pygmy, and then extend the story into 1941 with at least the first part of the competition between the three organizations and the Army and all that melodrama that was going on, which is detailed specifically in Chapter 11 of the current book. So I still love this early Jeep history, passion for it, even after 20 years, and I'm grateful for the chance to talk about it with you. 
Well, absolutely. Well, let's do this. I know it's a bunch bigger story than we can cover here because part of my show will be talking about you. But in this first phase, maybe you could touch on a couple early things that you discovered that most people don't know about Jeep because you alluded to a few things there that I went, what? What is he talking about? Because most of us think of Jeeps as wartime, World War II, predominantly, and then how the Jeep evolved after that, the vehicles, and of course, nowadays, the Jeeps that still look kind of the same as the old ones. My next door neighbor had a Jeep for a long time. He loves going off-roads. Uh, it it kind of made way to a Ford Raptor. He wanted something, I think, faster and more enclosed. Touch on a couple of those early things that really, really surprised you as you started to dig and put your heels into this. All right, I'll give you a couple, and there's a whole bunch in the book. The first is the Army was trying to solve this problem of needing a vehicle that was exceptionally versatile, that could be used by all the using arms, infantry, cavalry, field artillery, da-da-da-da, which would have varying requirements to replace the mule and the horse for transporting troops and small payloads. And they were working on that through the 30s. In May of 1940, two weeks after Hitler invaded the Low Country, there's this, this big meeting at Camp Holabird, Maryland, outside of Baltimore, which was the main vehicle procurement depot at the time. And at that meeting, they had all the using arms there. They had nothing, nothing on the drawing board for this after all that time. It, now, wait a minute. This is 1940. Ni 1940, May 1940. Wow. Wait for this one. Wait for this one, Mark. So American Bantam Car Company, who would eventually build the first Jeep, had hired a gentleman by name Charles Payne to try to interest the Army in their small vehicles. One of the colonels, the colonel of infantry, goes back to his office literally the day of that meeting ended, and Charles Payne is sitting in his window. And Charles Payne says, I'm here to interest. I'm looking for a certain person. Colonel Oses says to him, that person's not here. And why are you here? And he says, well, I'm trying to interest the army and vehicles. And Colonel Oses says to him, I'm the guy that knows everything there needs to know about vehicles for the infantry. I'm the one you're supposed to talk to. So out of this chance meeting, which should have never happened, they spent the next two weeks developing a general set of characteristics that was codified in a memo, which I've actually held in my hand, dated, wait for it, June 6, 1940, four years to the day before D-Day. And that was the first official v first official uh, document that kicked off the Jeep procurement. That's just one of the stories where you go, wow, how did this happen? Yeah. It's unbelievable. If I can give you one more okay. real quick. So then one of the big bugaboos in the Jeep procurement was the weight. Now, I was a project manager, right? This is the requirement from Hades that you don't want, where the people who want something decide on their own without talking to any of the experts what they want. Right. And this happens in IT all the time. So the Army decided, uh, you know, we need a vehicle between the motorcycle and sidecar that weighs 500 pounds, and we need a vehicle that and it's also between the half-ton truck. So this is just going to magically weigh a quarter ton. Magic. Yeah, magically. And without any of the characteristics, talking to the experts, and there was no way the vehicle could be built to that. So they put the proposal out that we want a vehicle that's going to weigh 1,300 pounds. Bantam is putting their proposal together, the ones that built the first Jeep. They put all the documents together, the engineer and the president. They go down to Baltimore and meet with Charles Payne, who I've mentioned, who was the sales rep. And he looks at the documents and goes, you've put 1,800 pounds in the weight box. This thing, you can't say that. Because it will not check off the box. It has to weigh under 1,300 pounds, even if it doesn't go to weigh under 1,300 pounds. So Carl Probst, who was the engineer that was designing it, 20 years later is relating the story. And he says, 
We decided to put in a weight of 1,273 pounds. We called in a stenographer at 3.30 a.m., had the documents all retyped. 75 years later, I'm in the archives, and I find Bantam's bid proposal. And I'm holding that historic doc in my hands, and I look in the weight box, and it says 1,273 pounds. I don't know exactly where that number came from. And I'm just like... Wow. And it's just like, you know, yeah, we can't make it 1299 because that might look a little fishy. So we'll just make it 1273. So that's just two <laughs> stories of the eye dropping tale of the early Jeep history. And there's many, many more that I see on the road every day going, you people have no idea how this vehicle came about. So wow. thank you for letting me relate those two stories. Well, yeah, they're great. And I, I'm hoping the plan here is that we've uh, spurred some imagination and questions in people so that they'll run out and order this book. I'm going to make it really easy for you guys uh, on Paul's show notes page. I, as I always do with authors here, a quick click to buy. So you got to get your hands on this. If you love history, even if you're not into Jeeps, if you love history and you love how things came to be, this book is going to be something that you'll just find absolutely fascinating. There's a lot more of these little stories, these little golden nuggets that Paul just shared throughout the book. You know, I always ask my guests to share a big challenge or even a big failure they that they face in their lives. And it's really more about what they've learned from it. In your case, maybe it relates to how you put these books together and the difficulty sometimes, because I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of authors, and this is really lots of times like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. And many of my guests will say, or my author guests will say, you know, I thought this was going to be easy. And it wasn't. <laughs> in, in some cases, I had a guest on not too long ago who spent eight years putting together a book about Steve McQueen, Marshall Tyrrell, and quotes. And the trouble there was aligning the quotes with the imagery that were in the book, he thought, oh, a quote book, I'll knock this out in a few weeks, you know, piece of cake. No, not really. So uh, take us down a path of a great challenge, even a great failure you face, and then tell us what was the learning lesson there that was so valuable. Yeah, the uh, the book was its own, or my early Jeep history tour with the screenwriting and the book, it's its own challenge. But if you asked me what was the greatest challenge I ever faced and life-changing, that would be my wife's death. Oh, yes. And my, my wife was my soulmate. She was the greatest woman I ever knew. I like to say completely biasedly, she was the second greatest woman who ever lived. I give that the first place to marry the mother of Jesus, your mother, son of God. Okay. In my paradigm. <laughs> okay. But, <yes. laughs> yeah. And anyway, but that really was something difficult. And mm. I, I can't say that I really have overcome it, but more endured through it and persevered. So that's two things that I learned. And the greatest two things that's really helped me with is a much more humble person than I was when I was younger. And I really learned a lot of empathy. I'm a much more empathetic person than I was when I was younger. And it's not just because I've gotten older, which sometimes these things will evolve, but the trauma, the suffering, the complete you know, totality of that and mm -hmm. having her you know, pass on at a relatively young age, that would be my greatest challenge. And I've dedicated both books to her oh, and great. her picture is right in the front. Our, our wedding picture is right in the front of both books. So, cause I wouldn't be the person I am without her and neither book would have happened with, without her. Absolutely. Well, my, my sincere condolences having been married as long as I have 36 years, I can't imagine 
what that puts one through and uh, how you move forward from that. We all lose people in our lives, but losing uh, a spouse, I think the only thing worse is losing a child. And that's, uh, that's <laughs> look, I haven't had to deal with that, but I've had friends that can't even imagine that uh, in any respect. So my hat's off. What was your late wife's name? Uh, Kathy with Kathy. a C. <laughs> Kathy with a C. Very nice. Well, Kathy, uh, no doubt left uh, wonderful memories behind, and it's nice that you tribute those books to her. You can keep her memory alive in so many people's hands when they open up that book and see her her beautiful face smiling there. So, uh, yeah, very, very, very challenging. Let me ask you this for people that have perhaps just recently gone through the loss of, of a loved one. Uh, I know with your passion for uh, religion, for God, that helps you get through it, no doubt. Uh, that's a big uh, comfort in many, many ways. But What's something that you might offer to people if they have to deal with this to help them move one step forward in the right direction? Because really, when we lose people in our lives, they want us to live on. They want us to endure. They want us to have a wonderful life and not be grieving our entire life. That's what they truly want. So what's one little piece of wisdom you might offer in that respect? Uh, Fantastic question, Mark. Just a couple things. One, the grief journey is exceptionally personal. Because each of us reacts differently to it, depending on the relationship, depending on one's wiring and how they are. So I don't offer necessarily any wisdom and how someone should deal with their grief other than remember it's very personal and don't feel that anything you're going through is wrong because it's not, it's you. The second is the advice I've seen from many experts, which I followed to a T, which was exceptionally helpful. And I absolutely recommend this as someone's been through it. Do not make any major decisions in your life like getting in another relationship, moving, changing anything for the first year. Just go through the grief for the first year. After you get through the first year, then if you want to consider those things, fine. For example, I waited a year and a half to sell the house that my wife and I were in, and I downsized. My wife was older than me, so we weren't able to have children. And so I didn't have any children to worry about, anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so, but I waited that year and a half. And looking back now, and it's been eight years, that wait a year advice, that I would give to anyone. anyone if you're going through a a major grief event, including, you know, uh, at least in terms of losing a spouse. You know, it's wonderful advice. And especially if you can do that, many of us typically lose parents before we lose a spouse. And we have to sometimes move quicker than we want with their homes, their things, their goods. You can't just let them sit because they're not living in your home for most cases, right? And uh, in the case of having that time, we've had that with parents in our family that means a world of difference, just to let things lay for a while, because it also helps you not make irrational decisions, uh, foolish decisions, decisions you will learn to regret because you've got all these steps to go through. So that's wonderful advice. The other thing I've told people who've lost, let's say, parents, and they're still having a hard time with that, is I always say, how would your parent want you to go on and live your day? Wouldn't they want you to be happy? So do your best to be happy and live to their honor, uh, live to serve, as you said at the beginning of our conversation. That's what they would want. So, uh, well, thank you for taking us on a really personal journey. Again, my condolences and and uh, your words of wise wisdom there that you can share with everybody. Let's take a breath here. We'll take a pause. We'll thank our sponsors. And we come back, we're going to talk about your personal passion for this thing called the Jeep and perhaps other vehicles that have come into your life. So sit tight. We'll be right back. Let's step away from the conversation and talk about our charity of choice here at Cars Yeah, America's 
Automotive Trust. America's Automotive Trust is a group of like-minded nonprofits that are working together to preserve and promote car culture across the country. Together, they provide scholarships and grants to aspiring technicians and restoration artists. They provide youth education programs and bring communities together through auto-related events, car shows, and drives. Among these nonprofits is TechForce Foundation, a great organization dedicated to solving the technician shortage that threatens the transportation industry today. By providing career development resources and increasing awareness and enthusiasm for the tech profession, TechForce is bringing bright young students into the auto, diesel, aviation, marine, motorcycle, motorsports, and restoration worlds. To date, they've awarded more than $10 million in scholarships and grants to tech students. And in times like these, I don't have to tell you how essential those techs are. Keeping our delivery and emergency vehicles running and keeping America rolling. To learn more about TechForce or to make a donation to this cause, visit www.techforce.org. You'll be glad you did. What do you do after running a race team for 27 years with over 100 professional wins, multiple wins at the 24-hour of Daytona, and a win at Le Mans? Well, if you're Kevin Buckler, racer and the racing group's team owner, you create Adobe Road Winery. Located in Petaluma, California, he and his team have created a winning combination with the Racing Series, four ultra-premium red wine blends that are in a class of their own. Like racing, these wines comprise of art, precision, engineering, science, and a whole lot of fun. You can choose from four blends titled Redline, Apex, Shift, and the 24. Today I'm going to tell you about Redline. It's a rich and complex blend delivering a taste of ripe blackberries, black cherry licorice, and a hint of toasty oak. An added very cool option is that this features the world's first interactive wine label. That's right. When you pour the wine, the three-dimensional tachometer actually hits the red line. It's incredible. The Racing Series is a killer gift for the automotive enthusiast in your life, and I've got a deal for you. If you use the code CARSYEAH, all one word in all caps, when you go to checkout, you'll get $10 off any purchase of wines from the Racing Series. The wine ships promptly and arrives quickly right at your door. Use the code CARSYEAH at checkout for $10 off of your purchase today. There's always a seat at the table for excellence with the Racing Series. Go to adoberoadwines.com and use the code CARSYEAH to save $10 today. Cheers! All right, we are back as we uh, jauntily move through the desert in this thing called a Jeep, and we're having fun. I'm just trying to envision that because Jeeps are so much fun. Would you share a story with me that uh, instigated really this passion you have for the Jeep and for vehicles, and maybe tell us a pivotal moment in your life when you knew, hey, I like these things. I'm going to study them, and I'm going to write books about them. Yeah, we mentioned it earlier, uh, you know, from my passion for early Jeep history of that seminal moment on the big rigs of combat. But I think the other big moment for me uh, in terms of my early Jeep history and be able to tell the story, I learned a lot about it between 1999 and 2013. Then I went to the archive saying, I need more material for the book. And I'd heard about this court case, uh, the Federal Trade Commission versus Willis Overland Motors, Inc. That was done during the war. I didn't really know that much about it. So I went to the National Archives, as you mentioned, in College Park, Maryland, and that case is there. So I was going to look in other places, but I said, let me pull this 
you know, request this case. And this is, at least in the United States, what a country. So I just put my request in. They come out, wheel out the whole case. It's like 16 book things uh, with all sorts of stuff. And I start looking through it, and I realize I've just found the holy grail of early Jeep history. Everything was there. Wow. And 4,000 pages of testimony. Now, as an historian, one of the issues with oral history, which this would be, is number one, the people may be older when they tell it, and, and, and so their memories aren't good. This was done, this court case was done between 1944, 43 and 45. So just a few years after all the events, right. and they deposed everyone who was involved in creating the first vehicles, both Bantam, Willis, and Ford people. Second part was that the other thing with, um, oh yeah, with uh, oral history is it, it's shockingly people might embellish what they really? did. You think? I know exactly, Mark. <laughs> I can't, it's unbelievable. I can't believe it. I'm we shocked. actually have to talk about that. Shocking. <laughs> we're shocked. Yes. But what happened here was they were in a court case. They called it, a, I can't remember exact name, but with a judge basically, and you were sworn in. So they were basically under, under perjury oath. issues, yeah, under yeah. oath, exactly, to tell the truth. So I'm reading this testimony. I'm saying, this is really right after it all happened, and it's going to be the truth as far as these people know because they're under oath. And then they had all this documentation from, as exhibits, of all the early Jeep history. That's where I found Bannon's bid proposal. Let me give you one more example. Uh, yeah. So. I'm out on the web over all those years, and I find this drawing, and it, people keep saying, this is the very first drawing of a Jeep. We don't know really where it came from or, or how it came about, but this we know this is the first drawing. I'm reading the trial transcript, and they're, inter they're deposing Frank Fenn when the Army came to Bantam on June 19th and 20th, 1940, to help them develop the characteristics for the vehicle, and there was a copy of the drawing, a literal copy. It might have even been the right, original one wow. in the in the file. And I'm holding that in my hand, and Frank Fenn says, well, at the end of the first day, Mr. Beasley and Mr. Brown, uh, Brown took out a yellow pa uh, legal pad like the one you're holding, and they drew the concept drawing for the Jeep. So we know exactly who drew it, when they drew it, and why they drew it. Wow. And I put that in the book. It's in both books, and I call it the Beasley-Brown drawing. But that was just... All the information was there to tell the story. My value add, for lack of a better term, was in the testimony, it was all over the place. You know, they'd go from 40 to 41 and back to 40 and back right. to here. So I was able to read all of it and organize it into a coherent narrative. And what I decided was, I'm going to let the people who did this tell their own story. Right. So we include a lot of relatively longer quotes, but... Why me tell the story when the people had already told the story and I have it right here? Right. And so we allowed the Bantam in the new book, the Bantam officials, the Willis people, and the Ford people to tell their story as it happened. And then I pieced together for chapter 11 the, um, you know, the events in the procurement. But that was just – that was the real turning point moment where I knew I could tell the story when I found that case. And holding those things in my hands as an historian, these documents – that you know were pivotal in terms of what came after, in terms of the, the Jeep is credited by both General Marshall and General Eisenhower as one of the key reasons why the Allies won the war and is still around 80 years later, it was humbling. 
humbling yeah. to hold those things in my hands. Wow. Well, yeah. Talk about the Holy Grail. I don't. I don't know any other scenario other than bringing back the dead, where you could sit down and have them write down that you could have uncovered. So the fact that you had all of that together and then had to organize it, which. Uh, yeah, phenomenal. Because other people doing history, many times they're trying to figure out, is this true? Did that person really say that? And they, uh, yeah, uh, man, how fantastic. It's a wonderful story. And I'm so happy you brought it to us. I always ask my guests to talk about their first really special vehicle. I have to ask you this. Have you had an old Jeep? I haven't at this point. But my first special vehicle was a 1987 two-door Ford Mustang. Okay. You know, as a young guy, Five speed on the floor, which I wouldn't do now because my knee wouldn't handle it. But, you know, <laughs> hey, back I was in my 20s at that time. I, and it also says, do you have one special memory with or, with that vehicle? Yeah. <laughs> well, here we go again with the exciting life Paul Bruno leads. I went on <laughs> with that vehicle as a young guy two Civil War battlefield tours because I used to live on the East Coast. Uh So I took the vehicle, threw my pump tent in the the trunk and stuff and went down and visited Gettysburg, Antietam, Chancellorsville, Fredericksburg. Second tour that I did in 89, the first one was in 85. I made it all the way down to uh, Chattanooga. So did some of the Western theater. So I still remember driving that thousands of miles that blue mustang just me and uh you know to go visit all these historic sites because that's you know, obviously shockingly something i'm interested in well yeah i kind of guessed that yeah history is kind <laughs> of important to you it should be important to everybody i mean it really tells us from where we came and uh you know when you ignore history yep you're doomed to repeat it so it's such an important part of anybody's culture whether it's good history or it's embarrassing history it's important to know uh, so you don't repeat those mistakes. I'm going to crawl in your head here, Paul. Uh, this could be a scary place or it could be a fun place. We'll see where, what happens. I go with scary. <laughs> go with scary. Yeah, the guy in the back. Oh, he's he's going to be scary. Uh, if you were manifest as a vehicle, Paul, you woke up and you were a vehicle. Not what you want to be, but how you perceive your personality in a vehicle. What would you be? But more importantly, why? Yeah, I'd like to be one of those first three Jeeps because... Obviously, I love them, but the reason is they were deceptionally well-designed and they did what they were supposed to do beyond everyone's expectations. And that's what I'd like to be, you know, well-designed and and do what I'm supposed to do well. And I've said that to people that to me, the Jeeps I see around on the road, that the DNA of every one of those Jeeps, no matter what model it is, was in those first three that are in, in, in the current book. And so if I had to be any vehicle, yeah, I might not have a windshield and be, I mean, a a top and be a little cold, but I'd want to be one of those early Jeeps because it was exceptionally well-designed, did what it did well, still around after 80 years. and And just as importantly, it served in the military where equipment becomes obsolete very quickly for almost 50 years. That's astonishing. Yeah. Astonishing. I know. It's incredible. Yeah. Real tribute, last thing, to the people who designed uh, these three vehicles and built them for the Army there in in 1940. You know, one of the cool things I recall, too, about the Jeep, and I've seen this at a museum, the way they would crate those up and throw them out of airplanes with, uh, I was going to say umbrellas, but I guess they were parachutes. Uh, (laughs) Umbrellas don't work too well. And now they could put them together so fast and take them apart and interchange parts. And everything is pretty simple. Um, I'm assuming there's probably maybe only one size wrench that fits everything on that Jeep. That's true. Actually, standardization was a key component. And we actually document that in the book of what they were looking for, because they had a nightmare of vehicles and World War One, 
with all these types of vehicles, you couldn't get parts. So they really wanted standardization and how they eventually got to that as the, uh, the procurement evolved. Willis won the contract for the very f- to build 16,000 Jeeps in 1941. Uh, then about s- five months later, the Army realized we're going to need even more of these, and they wanted a second supplier, mainly feeling uh, problems of sabotage. It was actually sabotage at a factory in New Jersey during World War I. Wow. So this was still in their mind. Yeah, actually. So they went to Willis and said, you know what, Willis? We'd like Ford to build your vehicle under license and, uh, and you to give them all your blueprints and stuff. And how would you feel about that? Oh. Shockingly, they went, absolutely, government, we're really happy to do this. You know, it was, it was a godfather offer. We're going to make you an offer you can't yeah, refuse. Yeah. And so Ford built the Willis model during the war. They built 277,000. Ford did. They called theirs the GPW, General Purpose Willis. And obviously the Willis was called the MB, which was the successor of the MA. We talk about the MA in the book and how that came about from the original Willis, which was the Willis Quad. But um, that's kind of the, you know, where I'd go with that particular question. Okay. Well, I like the way you answered that, which leads me to, I have to ask the question, why is it called a Jeep and not a Willis? Well, good question. We put in, and they tried to really find out during the trial how the Jeep name came about, because that was a key component of what they were looking at. And they really couldn't figure it out. It was There was a lot of conflicting testimony. The best they could come up with that, and then I've been able to see, and this is our best theory, is somehow vehicles that came into the depots, any type of vehicle, for some odd reason, during between the wars, they called Jeeps. So I think what happened here, when the quarter tons came in, they were calling them the Bannum, the Willis, the Ford. They started calling it Jeeps just like they did. And somehow the name got stuck to the quarter tons, even though they re- re- weren't really a quarter ton. You know, the vehicles that, that Bannon, Willis, and Ford put in. And by the spring of 41, the name was specifically to that type of vehicle. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. And I included the, the conclusion from the trial in chapter uh, chapter 12, the epilogue of the book, word for word of how they, what they decided in terms of the Jeep name. So we won't know for sure, but we do know between the time Bantam delivered their first vehicle on September 23rd, 1940, and even by January of 41, they were Jeeps and were going to be called Jeeps. Wow. Fascinating. Well, we're entering the last lap. I'm going to fire off some uh, rapid questions, get some rapid answers, a uh, little a throttle blips of that first Jeep, uh, as we say. Yeah, and the big throw, a shifter column there, so or shifter on the floor. So here we go. What's one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your successes in life? I am an absolutely overly organized person. I like to say I'm very spontaneous, but I organize it. It'll be, I'll be spontaneous two weeks from now at 3 p.m. Everybody show up for it. That's a gift I got from both parents, and that helped me with even putting the Jeep book together because I was really able to organize and see the material that was so disparate. So wow. organization. Yeah, absolutely. If I could wave a magic wand and arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would it be? Harold Christ who was the key number one person who helped build the very first Jeep. Hands-on, automotive genius from early on, and I would love to sit down with him and have a drink and say, what was it like to build the first Jeep? No doubt, for sure. Now, when it comes to automotive advice someone else has given you, what would that be? (laughs) I had this 1979 Dodge Aspen, which was, let's just say it was not a good vehicle. Uh And the thing, my father literally put six carburetors in this thing. 
Okay. Six. My father sold, he, he sold auto parts for a living. Six carburetors in this thing. So in the spring of 87, the car breaks down on the side of the road. I call my dad up. He comes up and my dad just looks at me and he says, you know, I think it's time to sell this car. Yeah. That was the best automotive advice I ever, I said, dad, after six years of this thing breaking down, I could support that concept. And that's when I got the Ford Mustang that I, I mentioned earlier. I think it's time to sell this, sell this car. car. Yeah, absolutely. Now there's so many great resources. Obviously, as an author, you seek resources. Is there one you might want to share with our listeners that it's a go-to for you? Um, I don't know how to really generally for the listeners. For me, my greatest resource for the books anyway was the National Archives. Yeah. All right. In my opinion, obviously people, you know, they may have a life or not, but if you live near College Park, Maryland or could drive there and you love Jeeps, just to go there and request that Willis court case, anybody can do it. Yeah. And have them bring them out and just leaf through the photographs, the exhibits, read some of the testimony in that court case. If you love Jeeps, early Jeep history or Jeep history or motive history, I mean, just being able to hold that concept drawing that I mentioned earlier, the very first one, a copy of my in my hand, the copy of Bantam's bid proposal and many other documents. They had the, it was called drawing 08370 Dash Z. Uh -huh. That was the drawing they sent out to the 135 companies that the people had to bid to. I got to hold that in my hands. In your hands. So that that would be that would be the resource that I would recommend. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, these resources that we have in this country, I even say just your library has massive resources that goes untapped by so many people. My wife loves to read. She gets all her free reading material sent electronically right to her tablet, audiobooks or uh, written books that she can read. And it's all for free. It's all right there. And you can even request a book from them and they'll order one and get you one. And real quick, the archives is free. Anyone, any citizen can go. There you go. Absolutely. Well, I always ask my guests to recommend a book. Obviously, this book titled The Original Jeeves by Paul R. Bruno, who we're talking with today, is going to be a recommendation. Your other book, Project Management in History, the first Jeep, another great one. Is there maybe one other book you might want to recommend? Yeah, a book that made a big difference in my life, written in 1936 by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I really recommend that because human nature never changes. This guy had it down. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Get it, read it, study it. It can help. It can help really help people in their lives. You know, it's a book that I used to go back to every year. Maybe I need to pick it up again. But uh, you know, I make friends every day, like I've made with you today. So I guess I'm doing something that I learned through that reading of that book year after year. But it really is. It's a book that works for everybody over over time. It's fantastic. I'll make sure I put a link to all these books on Paul's show notes page on the Cars yeah website. Just type in Paul Bruno. That page will pop up, pop up with quick, easy clicks to buy. All right, we're up to the checkered flag here, Paul. This last question could be a bit of a doozy. I'm going to buy you a collector car today. Any car in the world, doesn't matter where it is, who owns it. I'm going to park it in your garage. But there are some rules to my game, as my listeners know, because I'm writing the check. Uh, you can't sell it to fund another book project or you know, live on an island somewhere that you bought with the proceeds from the car I gave you because you sold it. You got to keep it. It's got to check a lot of boxes. It's got to do a lot of things for you. Uh, but it's the only one collector car you can have, and I want you to enjoy it. No garage queens here. So what am I buying for you today, Paul? You are buying 
in chapter 10 of the first book, we detailed how Kim and Duncan Rolls recreated the first band on the BRC pilot, which is on the cover of both Project Management and History, the first Jeep and the original Jeeps. Mm -hmm. He rebuilt it from scratch. I am I met the Rolls's. I'm dear friends with them now. That would be the vehicle you would purchase for me. Duncan's recreation. It's fully drivable, goes anywhere, and put that in my garage. I've actually sat in that vehicle, and it's like sitting in history. Is that the picture Steve sent me? It could be of me sitting in a in a vehicle with a nice, handsome gentleman behind the driver's seat. Could yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, uh, there's a guy sitting there in uniform. You've got a huge smile on your face. Yeah, it's got a license plate that says 302 on it. Yeah, that's the exact vehicle I'm talking about right there. That's the one. I got to sit in that vehicle with Duncan. What a moment. Well, I'll make sure I put that picture on Paul's show notes page so you all can see what we're talking about. Now, is that called the BRC Pilot? Yep. BRC Pilot model. He recreated it down to the last detail. All right. amazing. That's going to take a big check to separate that from his hands, I have a feeling. Yeah, it would, ta- it would take some dollars for sure. Maybe he'll make another one for you. We'll see what we can do here. <laughs> Paul, you've taken me on a fun ride in this Jeep today. I knew this would be a blast. I want to thank you for sharing your journey. Before I let you go, though, would you share one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance with our listeners before you drive off into the desert sunset in that BRC pilot, that first Jeep? Yeah, one word I'd say to your listeners is persevere. I persevered through many things. We talked about my wife on my early Jeep history you know, persevered through the screenwriting and trying to get the first Jeep movie made, didn't work out, but then was given the inspiration and obviously the help and support of my wife before she passed away to do the books. And here I am 20 years later, still talking about my passion for early Jeep history, two books done and found so many things like we talked about with the Willis, the, the Willis case and all the other documentation and all the other stories and the people I've met on the journey. I've met so many really good people uh, that have helped with the books. If I could tell one really good story. I met a guy in Butler named Robert Brandon. He had a roll of photographs that the Bantam people took while they were building their pilot. And they're in the book. They're in both books, Project Management History and the original Jeeps. And Robert Brandon, his kindness and generosity, he allowed me to put those in the build chapter, put those photographs in the book. So you can see the very first Jeep as it was built. And so that's the kind of people I've met on this journey. And that's been really great. So persevere, stick with your goals. It may take you on journeys and detours and, you know, off the road so far up the mountain, like a Jeep will, but you'll get to your destination if you persevere and hopefully become a better person for it. And you'll have a lot more fun along the way. So is there a way for people to keep up with you? Well, the best way to keep up with us is terms of we, we created a Facebook page, okay. the original Jeeps. And on that page, we're actually asking people to share stories if they had them of their family and friends from World War II. I've been sharing stories from my uncle Nick's service as a B-24 flight engineer and my Aunt Marge's uh, service and the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. So there's samples out there for people. would love people to go out to that page and share some of those stories. Um, you can get my book at Amazon.com, paperback only, but this is one your listeners are going to want to hear for the same price as Amazon, $20, I'll mention the price, plus shipping. They can go to this website and hopefully you'll put it on the show notes. I will dispatchermagazine.com slash books, dispatchermagazine.com slash books, order an autographed copy, 
Continental USA only. I get the information and I send them an autographed copy. So we're really excited about offering that to people who listen to podcasts like yourself, like yours. Lastly, our website is theoriginaljeeps.com and people are more than welcome to go out there. If someone wants to contact me directly, that's the best way. Use the contact form at originaljeeps.com and the message will get to me. There you go. I'll make sure I put all of these. You know, this would make a great gift for someone in your family that loves history, loves old Jeeps, loves anything about uh, history, uh, the wartime, the World War II, or even carries you all the way through to today. So I would encourage you to click on this and you get an autographed copy. That's pretty cool. So I'll make sure I put Dispatcher Magazine. Is that right? Dispatcher Magazine? Yep, dot com slash books. Slash books. I'll put it on Paul's show notes page. And I want to do a quick shout out to Steve Turner at Solomon Turner. He's the one that introduced me to Paul. Uh, he's doing his job for you. So thank you very much, Steve. Uh, we got everything going here. I really appreciate that. Paul, thanks for being so generous today with your time, your expertise, and for sharing your Jeep story with me and the listeners. This has been great. Uh, until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you, Mark, for having me. It's been an honor and privilege to be on your show. And thanks for having us take a, take the early cheeps out for a spin. It was great fun, my friend. This was a blast. If you're listening to Cars Yeah, you've probably spent some time working on your favorite ride. But how confident are you working on your finances? You may be able to rebuild a fuel injection system, but can you decipher the details of a mutual fund? If you're like me, investments, insurance, annuities, budgeting, and other financial concepts may seem a bit daunting, but what if I told you there's a book that describes these subjects and more in an easy-to-read and a very humorous way? My friend Chris Kimball, CFP, a longtime sponsor and past guest here on Cars yeah, has written that book, and it's titled The Saga of Ike and Penny, a couple's humorous journey through the confusing world of finance. It's a fun look at things you need to know, everything from investing to effective ways to get rid of credit card debt, and it's probably the only book on finance with a VMAX on the front cover and a classic Mini Cooper on the back. The book's available at Amazon for just $10, and this book will dramatically improve the direction of your financial future. I gave copies to each of my children. All securities are through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Christopher Kimball Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Get your copy, The Saga of Ike and Penny, today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!